Well, my Bible says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. See, the Bible says it right there. Christ died for everybody. He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. If that's true, and the Bible is true, then Calvinism must be wrong. Christ did not die for a limited number of people. We'll be back in a minute. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. Uh, we're continuing on our discussion on limited atonement. You might be asking yourself, who replaced uh, the old Sinners and Saints with these new ones who don't believe in limited atonement? But we're going to take on uh, those objections. Obviously, we've read the Bible, and we see those passages, and they're good answers uh, to respond with. Uh, joining us in the discussion tonight, as usual, is Reverend Adam Kalushin from Ontario United Reformed Church and Reverend Moses Jambazian from Pasadena United Reformed Church, and I'm John Sautel. Uh, one of the pastors at First United Reformed Church of Chino. So, guys, uh, here, what do we do? We have this objection. It says, right here in my Bible, uh, he died for not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Doesn't that refute everything we've just said in the last three shows? Well, here's what we do. We take on those verses and see what they're actually saying. So one of them here, Ezekiel 18.23. Lord says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they return or when they turn from their ways... And live, and people say, see, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, so, therefore, obviously, Jesus Christ died for everyone on the cross. Now, I don't know if you ever stop to think about that objection for a minute. First of all, that passage does not say that Jesus died for everybody. They're making sort of a jump. They think that it's good logic to say, okay, A, if God the Father does not desire anyone to go to hell, that he desires them to be saved, then B, it necessarily follows that Jesus died to save everybody on the cross, and it's only man's Ergo, fault. Ergo, everyone is saved. Right. Well, no, 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 no. They, no, don't, they don't want to say they that. But say that's, that. That, that's what the logic would require, though. But see, it might surprise you to know that we do take that verse and others like it at face value. We do believe that there is the sense in which God desires the salvation of every human person. There is a sense in which... God does not delight, take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked whom he has chosen for destruction. And that's an important point to make here. Um, you would think, if you've not been schooled in traditional historical Calvinism, that this could never be affirmed by a Calvinist. But that's not true. Calvinists are trying to read the Bible. We're not trying to deny that God has publicly said, I don't take any pleasure. I don't delight in the death of the wicked. But what stands behind some of the revealed statements of scriptures is the secret will of God, but which is also revealed now in the New Testament, that God specifically chooses some unto salvation. Christ specifically set forth, God specifically set forth Christ to die for his people. We're not denying things like Second Peter 3, 9, where the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand it, but he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but to come to repentance. We have no problem affirming that there is a sense in which God desires the salvation of every 
man, woman, and child, even though he has not ordained every man, woman, and child to be saved. Now, we recognize at that point that we don't know how to bring these two truths together completely. It's a tension. You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to our children forever that we may follow the words of the law. So we want to take seriously the fact that God in some sense desires the salvation of people. That's why we preach indiscriminately. You know, we preach to everyone. We urge them to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And yet at the same time, we have to take seriously from Scripture, as you've been seeing over the weeks, that Jesus died specifically only for some, that God has chosen only some to be saved. Okay, isn't that a logical contradiction, though? No, because a logical contradiction would say God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked and God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember, go back a few weeks, we were talking about the doctrine of election and we said somebody might accuse us of having a logical fallacy by saying that man is responsible and God is sovereign at the same time, even though we hold both of those things to be true. And we said, no, that's not a fallacy because we're not saying man is responsible and man's not responsible or God is sovereign and God is not sovereign. It's the same thing here. We're not saying God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked and he doesn't. We're saying he does take pleasure in the death of the wicked and he sends Jesus only to die for some. It's no more of a logical contradiction than to say that God is one and yet three persons and not the same time that he's three gods. It's a mystery. There's all kinds of mysteries in the Christian faith, and we're willing to submit human logic to Scripture and just say that God is much bigger than we are, and we have to take seriously all that God has revealed in his word, and we leave it at that. Now, some of you hear John say, oh, it's a mystery. You say, well, that's exactly the point. All of these things are a mystery. You know, you guys want to argue about, quibble about, you know, did Jesus die for everybody? Did Jesus die for some? We just want to love Jesus. We just want to follow the Bible and do what's right. You guys overcomplicate religion. No, we're not. Okay? It is very important that you are clear about uh, the extent of the atonement of Jesus Christ. If you're not clear about the extent of the atonement, you're going to get distracted from the security and the love that he actually has for you and for his people. Okay, let's come at this from a different angle. So so somebody will say, okay, I'll give up that point. But aren't there passages in Scripture which seem to indicate that there are people who Christ died for who are yet going to perish? I and mean, one of the passages that, that sounds like it's saying that would be Romans uh, 14, 15, which says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Again, keep in mind the context in which these are being written, as opposed to our confessions, which are distilled from Scripture and meant to establish a theological teaching clearly. These are what are called occasional letters. They are written for the occasion, and so there is a presupposition of the theology behind it. Here, Paul is telling people, you cannot be arrogant with your faith. You cannot use your faith and the freedom that God gives you in Christ in a manner that would be unholy, in a manner that would be destructive for your brothers whom he has purchased, to the point that you are putting them in a position where they may have to go against their conscience and thereby sin or act in a manner that they think is sin. Yeah, but Moses, doesn't it say that if you do this, you will destroy your brother for whom Christ died? Doesn't that mean that their faith will be lost? No, it doesn't say that they're going to lose, they're going to perish or fall away from the faith at all. It just says that they're going to be spiritually struggling because they're going to go against their conscience 
And that's wrong. The Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. And by the way, if you read this passage literally, you're also going to have to come up with the position that Christ died for specific people because it says, your brother for whom Christ died. Therefore, clearly the text is teaching Christ died for someone, not no one. Okay, there's a a lot more passages we have to take on. We know that you have a lot of uh, struggles and concerns about this from Scripture, and we want to be patient and deal with those uh, text by text. So stay with us after the break. You're listening to Sinners and Saints on 99.5 FM, KKLA. Hi, this is Reverend John Sautel, pastor of Congregational Life and Outreach at First United Reformed Church of Chino. We are a Protestant, Bible-based, family-oriented church committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are located just off the 60 freeway at Mountain Avenue in Chino. We worship at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. every Sunday. If you'd like more information about our church, give us a call at 866-99-UNITED. That's 866-99-UNITED. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. All right, we're back here after the break. We're answering your objections. We know that you've, uh, you're listening to what we're saying and got your Bible open and you're reading some passages which seem to contradict or go against what we're saying here. By the way, if you want more uh, answers, you would like more information about the Reformed faith, call us at 866-99-UNITED or uh, check out our website, centersaint.org. And by the way, we'd be happy to send out to you uh, a confession booklet for free, which contains the three forms of unity, which explain these things in greater detail. But there are other passages, by the way, that we have to get to uh, in terms of your objections. And other ones would be Second Peter two one, which seems to assert Christ died for some who are going to perish. Well, let's read it. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Now, I don't think some people say, look, it cannot be any clearer. There are false teachers. The Lord bought them, and through their false teaching, they are going to come under destruction and lose their salvation. I mean, so clearly Christ died for people, unlike you guys are saying, uh, who are going to perish. Well, you have several problems with that then. Number one, you're dealing with the fact that Christ's work then could not be effective. That even though he wants to save people, he dies for them, he pays for them, yet even in that state, they manage to condemn themselves. So all of a sudden, Christ is no longer the propitiation for sin, once for all having made redemption, but now he is a well-wisher, but not much more than that. He's our cheerleader. Yeah, you know, you guys always say this. This is the response you'll get to that, Moses. You guys always accuse us of doing that, of making Christ weak and whatever else. We're not making him weak. We love Jesus. We think that his atonement was strong. But look, man is responsible and has freedom, and God does not, you know, violate that freedom. You guys speak of it as if, you know, Jesus was crying. You say that we believe that Jesus was crying to try and save everybody, but he really couldn't. No, we're not saying that at all. We're just saying that you guys aren't following the biblical logic. You aren't living with the tension. It says that he died for everybody, and you're not dealing with the fact that you can't reconcile that with your other Calvinistic views. Once again, now, it context. says in the, No, it says in this verse... 
the Lord who bought them. Thank you. Let's bring it back to the word bought them. Doesn't that sound like Christ paid the price for their sin and they plunged themselves willfully into destruction after he already paid the, uh, paid the price for their sins? Once again, context, context, context. Who is writing? To whom is he writing? He is right. It's Peter who is writing to a church who is wondering about where the second coming is. Why are things being delayed? What's going on? And it is in that context that he says these people who fool themselves into believing they have been bought, those who have been part of the covenant community and therefore whom we charitably assessed as being believers are now denying that Christ who they at one point professed they believed. And in that context is the condemnation of an apostate rather than a mere unbeliever. That's right. The Lord is mocking these false teachers. He's saying, you know, here are people who are presenting themselves as being saved, uh, proclaiming supposedly truth from God, talking about Jesus buying them, but actually he didn't. This is the idea that this is almost sarcasm in the Holy Spirit's way of speaking. You know, here they are preaching heresy, denying the Lord who supposedly bought them, is the idea of this passage. They're presenting themselves, like Moses says, they give a profession of faith in a certain way, a profession that they've been bought, but it isn't that they've been bought substantially at all. We keep emphasizing, and we want you to really take seriously, read the Bible in its context. When you read something that says, my wife is a rose and her eyes are like pools of water, you know you're not reading a biology text. You are reading poetry. You are reading a love letter. And so in the same way, just because a word appears somewhere, that is not an absolute meaning for that word. The context will determine how to understand it. And the Bible does use sarcasm. All right. Well, let's take on maybe even harder text then. What about those passages which seem to say so clearly that Christ died for the whole world. Obviously, the text everybody's thinking about, so we have to address it as John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, doesn't it say Christ died to save everybody? Okay, where, John? The whole world. Where, the now, whole world. Where does it say in John 3.16 that so Jesus died So loved the world, he gave the, his only begotten Son for it. Did that say that Jesus died for the whole world? Well, I mean, obviously, that's the that's the position that many are going to take on the passage. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why I'm this is why I'm asking the question because you know we just sort of assume that John three sixteen because it's one of the texts that it's always used to supposedly prove this idea that Jesus died for everybody. We just assume that it says it. But think about that. For God, you know, open your Bible, look at John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Where in that passage? Does it teach that Jesus died for everybody's sins? I mean, all it says is that God sent Jesus into the world, and whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. That's all it says. We believe that too. It doesn't talk about Jesus dying for everybody. Once again, context. The book of John is written to a church that is already becoming very Gentile, and it has already told us that this is for the world in terms of not just for the Jews to be true Jews, but it is for all the world, the Gentiles as well. In fact, that is a running theme in the book of John. And so this verse in that context helps us to, ex to understand Jesus came not only to make the Jews complete or whole Jews, but he came to save all sinners, all meaning from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, as John later also expands in the book of Revelation. One other contextual uh, clue here is verse 17, where it says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
the purpose in sending the son to die for the sins of the world is to save the world. So you're left with one of two positions. Either Christ died for absolutely everybody in the world, because that's what it says here, or Christ died to save a definite number of people in the world. That's- Let's you go have back universalism or specific atonement. Let's go back even earlier there, John 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may have in him eternal life. For God so loved the world, and it goes on. Well, later on, Jesus uses that same context that when he is lifted up, he will draw all nations to himself. If Scripture interprets Scripture and the Apostle John is guided by the Spirit, then we have to put all this together and say this is speaking the fact that Christ is Savior of all nations and not just the Jewish nation. So what you have here is a summary statement about the ethnic universalism of the gospel, not necessarily that Christ died for everybody or made some people savable. We come back to the break. We're going to take on two more passages. Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. Come to worship God at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Hear the gospel faithfully preached. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Come and join us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. We are located at 226 West Colorado in Arcadia off the Santanita exit of the 210 freeway. Call us at 866-99-UNITED or visit us at urcsocal.org. Hi, this is Pastor Bureau of Grace Evangelical Church in Torrance. We are a new Reformed Church serving all of South Bay. As a member of the United Reformed Churches of North America, Grace Evangelical Church emphasizes the preaching of the gospel, weekly administration of the Lord's Supper, catechism of our children, and emphasis on the singing of the Psalms, all in a family-friendly atmosphere. Come, worship with us. You can reach us at area code 310-782-7019. Okay, okay, the burning question now that you all have to address here is 1 John 2.2. 2. We read it at the outset. It seems so clearly to say Christ didn't die for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. How are you Reformed Calvinistic types going to take that verse on? It's, it's right there in black and white. Once again, we seek to understand who John is, what he was writing, to whom he was writing, and what the Spirit of God wanted to accomplish. John is writing to the church to make them understand that they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, whose work is effective and continues on to this day now that he has entered the most holy place, and he advocates for his church, whether they are Jew or Gentile, He pleads their case before the Father. As it says in Romans, we have an advocate with the Father. Here you see that that advocacy is not only for those of Jewish descent to whom John primarily ministered, but for all the world, for people of other nations and races as well. There's one other addition you can add to that, too, and that's clear uh, that John, from the context, is talking about the priestly work of Christ. The priestly work of Christ is that he offers himself as a sacrifice he is the propitiation. He's also the advocate. That's what John is saying in 2.2. He's talking about his intercession in heaven. Well, we know already from other scriptures, John 17.9, that when Christ carries out that priestly uh, work in heaven, when he stands as our advocate in heaven, as he is our high priest and intercessor in heaven, Jesus already said himself that he doesn't pray for or intercede for those who aren't given him. He only prays for those who the Father has given him. And so 
you have to pull all the pieces of Scripture together and bring them to bear on some of these passages. The more clear interprets, the less clear. Yeah, let me take you to another one. People often use this to say, look, Jesus died for everybody. It's Romans 5.18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. They say, don't you see? Jesus' redemptive work was for everybody. But listen, follow the logic of the passage. How is Adam related to those who receive his condemnation? Adam sins, and do people get a choice of whether or not they are dead? Or die? No, people die because Adam sinned, right? Everybody receives a condemnation. There's no condition of whether or not they will die. Then it comes to Christ. Christ is obedient. He dies on the cross. Oh, wait a minute. Then it seems like, according to the passage, that everybody who belongs to Christ will receive what he did, just like everybody who is really everybody ever born into the world, man, woman, and child, received what Adam did for them. But you all know that the Bible teaches that not everybody is saved and goes to heaven. So the all that received the work of Jesus must not be every single person in the world. It can't be if you follow the passage. What we have to see then is this. Adam was a representative. He stood before God and his work was going to bring condemnation or blessing for all those for whom he was the representative. And we know from scripture that he is the representative of each and every person ever born. Christ is coming as a second Adam to stand as a representative for those whom the Father has given him to represent. Now, either you can take the word all and say, well, it's the same extensive word as being used for Adam, and therefore each and every person must be saved, or it is the all that are given him. You're pointing out something is very crucial here. It's either all without exception, or it's all with distinction. There's no middle ground. There's no making people savable. Just as in Adam's case, he didn't make people sinnable. No, he brought his action brought condemnation to all. So Christ's work now must bring life justification to all who ever lived or all whom Christ represented. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. And since we know that not every man is saved, then we know that Christ did not die for all men. That's the point. Okay. He died for all of his people. Well, Scripture's clear. You have to bring in, again, the whole picture of Scripture, and it fills out very clearly. One other passage, however, that you have to deal with, and we'll wrap up this discussion on objections, is 1 Timothy 4.10. It says, And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, People are going to argue, well, doesn't it say it right there? God's the Savior of everybody. He's the Savior of all men. But there's this other special class, the ones who actually end up believing. And he's really, particularly, in a special way, the Savior of them, like he's not other people. Yeah, and, you know, we'll confess that for many, many years in the Christian church, this passage puzzled interpreters because they couldn't quite figure out how to understand this title, Savior of all men, given uh, the other clear teaching of Scripture that Christ saves some, basically his people. What's fascinating is they found a statue in the city of Ephesus 
that was erected about the time that Paul is writing to Timothy here, when Timothy was a pastor in the church in Ephesus, okay? They find this statue of Julius Caesar. Uh, he was being celebrated because he had prevented monies in the temple treasury uh, from being confiscated by Scipio during the Roman Civil War. They're honoring Julius Caesar by erecting a statue, and there's a title given to him on this statue. As Listen to this. The Universal Savior of Human Life. Interesting. This is a phrase that Paul is using to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And clearly, the use of Savior there does not mean the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. See, what you have to do is put a question to this text. Is Paul saying uh, God is the Savior in the sense of the atonement and propitiation, or is he saying God is the provider, the benefactor, the giver of good gifts to all men? And the answer is it's the latter. Yes, God is the one who gives good gifts to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. He's not saying God uh, is the uh, is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Yeah, people say, well, it says the word Savior, salvation. But remember, that word can obviously be used in different ways. And the proof of that is that this was a title used for generous benefactors in the culture, the wealthy who would give lots of money or lead in ways that would benefit the society. And God is just being exalted by Paul as the one who benefits mankind, the good God to all people, but especially, of course, to those whom he saves, the believers. Yeah. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED. Hi there, this is uh, Reverend John Sotel, co-host of Sinners and Saints. Do you live in the Chino Hills or Diamond Bar area? Well, if you do, I want to extend a very special invitation to you to come join us to study the Word of God. On Tuesday evenings at 7.30 at Chino Hills High School, we're currently studying through the Book of Romans. If you'd like to join us, just give me a call at 909-319-3479. That's 909-319-3479. Or for more information, check us out at allsaintsreform.org. That's allsaintsreform.org.